Hi everyone, my name is Patrick Akil, and for today's episode, we talk about empathy-driven software development. Empathy is sometimes hard to explain, but luckily my guest Andrea Goulet lays out the practical benefits of empathy in software development. I'll put all the links to her socials in the description below, and with that being said, enjoy the episode. Beyond coding. Yeah, we've been, Corgibytes has been remote for nine years. Really? So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we were we were doing it before it was cool. <laughs> I love when everyone says that. Yeah, yeah, you can and, say uh, that now. Yeah, and I even I posted a um, I recorded a class on LinkedIn Learning in yeah. 2019 about how to lead a remote software team. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like that was that was good timing. So yeah, yeah. but makes sense. but yeah, it's it's a good world, and I think there's a lot of places where you can absolutely make it work. But at the same time, like. There's value in personal connection. Yeah, I agree. Like, in real life. And then I think remote working, it makes it intentional, right? And then when you do connect with your colleagues in real life, it's, you know, you're trying to make you the get most more out done of it. Because you make yeah. the most out of it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I completely, so, yeah. I completely get that feeling. I mean, I joined different projects completely remote with people I hadn't seen physically. Uh, yeah. And it, it wasn't up until like months later that we actually saw each other that I was actually yeah. like, man, you're like two meters tall. Like, I, I know think, that's I think the that's biggest like... thing is the height. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have, um, we typically bring our team together once a year because we've yeah. got people all over the world. Um, but we haven't been able to the past two years because of the pandemic. So, yeah. So there's people I've worked with for two, actually we weren't able to do it the year before hmm. because we had some financial challenges. Um, yeah, so I have people I've worked with for like three or four years and I haven't met them in person. That's but even longer, yeah. You can make it work. You can totally make it work. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. How uh, how much of your time is spent now working on the book, actually? Because I've never written one. I, it seems like <sighs> a humongous a task. It yeah. is huge it's uh it is the hardest thing i've ever done yeah and that includes giving birth to two children oh <laughs> yes <my. laughs> it's it's really hard i think i think some of it is the topic okay um the topic that i'm talking about is incredibly big yeah and it's something that people haven't written about before it's vague so, right? it's not tangible to a lot of people it is to a lot of people and so like how do you take this really big thing, empathy, that nobody understands? And how yeah. do you take this thing, software, that you can't really touch, like the back end, most people, yeah. right? And then how do you mix them together? And then you get even more nebulous and then try to make it like concrete yeah. and relevant. So it's been like uh, one of my friends describes it as like sculpting clay. Okay. Where... It's like you have to keep reforming it and stuff like that. But then eventually you get there and you get the details. So the structure is very much in place. Yeah. I'm actually launching my first course um, in August. So okay. we're working on getting the website up next yeah. week or so, hopefully. So, you know, I definitely like have now like a template and I, I've been writing. I have over 150,000 words that I've written. Okay. That sounds it's like a, a matter lot. of it is yeah. a lot. I mean, it's over 350 pages of content, but yeah, that's huge. Being able to like put it in a narrative and make sure that it makes sense—that's that's where I am now. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I, I mean, if I imagine myself in that position, already sometimes writing an email that I think is important, I go over it a bunch of times just to make sure it is yeah. kind of perfect or it's at least where I think it should be. Um, yeah. And I think if you if you do that with a book, right, if you if you strive towards that perfection, it's going to take a long, long time before you actually get there. Like, are yeah. you consciously like doing that with kind of the things that you're writing that you're like, OK, this might not be perfect, but I think it is kind of hitting all the points that I want it to hit. I think one of the things that surprised me is that the things that I thought I knew going into this ended up being wrong. OK, <laughs> so what? Uh, so this is actually something that's very common in research. So you go in kind of with a theory, but then like I'm doing a very research focused approach. So there's a lot of academic literature that I'm that I'm looking at because I didn't yeah. want to just be like, this is my experience. Like I wanted everything to be really grounded. 
And so some of the ways that I was thinking that empathy worked um, or like the way that we construct emotions, they actually neuroscience shows that that's not really the case. Like okay. there's more and more evidence that actually this is, but it's made it really cool. So there's one neuroscientist um, who's done a significant amount of research on how emotions are made. She actually has a book of that title. Yeah. And it turns out that they're instantiated just like we do with object-oriented programming. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. So, yeah. And so, like, I thought that emotions happened to us. I thought yeah. there were universal facial expressions. And she walks through how some of the things that are very well known and very well replicated may not actually be the way that things work because of some of the methodology that was used and what the neuroscience tells us. So what we have with emotions is we have feeling patterns in our body. Okay. And that's, so we have kind of attributes and that, that is called interoception that I didn't know that word before. Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> feeling pattern in your body means yeah. interoception, right? So for me, like, you know, when I get, uh, angry, let's hmm. say sometimes like I go quiet. Okay. Right. Like yeah. I go inward and some people go outward. Right. So there's not that's like me. a universal. Yeah, yeah. Some people like rage and that's what everybody thinks. But what happens is it, we rely on behavioral strategies that have worked for us. So yeah. our brains are just prediction engines that are constantly like figuring out how to navigate the world and keep us safe based on our prior experience. Um, yeah. So for me, it's like I've learned to kind of like, yeah. Be really calm, diffuse the situation. Yeah. Get away and then get angry or like exactly. vent or something. So, yeah. But so you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell from my outward expression that I'm angry, but that's the way I'm feeling inside. And so in these conversations, it's like, it's like duct typing, right? Okay. Like we instantiate an emotion and then name it at runtime. <laughs> and it's like, and then our behaviors get called too. So it's like, okay. And, and so when we can start thinking of things in that way, and it's actually really neat too, because diving into the history of kind of computer science as well, like yeah. Alan Kay was a biologist. He was the one who developed object-oriented programming. Yeah. And he looked at like cells and like, how can we make things that are self-replicating and like, so, so there's just so many commonalities but they're not obvious. No. And I think that's what that's what has surprised me and that's what's taken longer. Okay. Is that what I thought I knew going into this? I mean, there's there's kernels of truth in it. Yeah. But we're in a golden age of neuroscience yeah. where we've got neuroimaging that is helping us really understand because prior to, you know, mid 2000s we didn't have anything other than behavior and other than people's verbal descriptions of what motivated them. Yeah, that was it. We just have to and trust that. And it turns that. out that like the things that we say are motivating us, sometimes we rationalize, but that's not actually what it is. Yeah. So we're able to like get all this new data and it's revealing a bigger picture. And so I wanted to make sure that all of that good content was in the book, um, but it's taken a lot to wrap my brain around <laughs> so yeah. that I can share it. But it's I get that. fun. I really like it. I can't wait until it's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And it yeah. is a it is a complex topic. And to me, it's not been obvious. It's only when I've talked to a lot of people, even on this show, that they're like, oh, software is actually a, a lot analogous to biology much more so than we thought and it's not as black as white and it is kind of an organism that keeps growing yeah um, until it either reaches an end or never actually reaches an end and i'm like man that does make a lot of sense and it it aligns yeah. with what i've seen in in projects and organizations um, yeah and i think the more we we draw those comparisons the more mm -hmm. we actually understand what is going on and the yeah. better our, our ju judgment becomes towards the future as well yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it is like biology, especially object-oriented programming. Like, it is directly designed to be like biology. Yeah. So um, that was the intent behind it. And 
Yeah, I absolutely think, you know, so Donella Meadows has a great book on systems thinking. Yeah. Um, like it is, it is exactly if you're looking to get into systems thinking, it's not too long. She explains things so clearly. Um, it was actually published after her death by several colleagues. Okay. And like it, she just describes how, like just what a general system does. And software yeah. is 100% a system, right? We've got things like, so one of the things that is critical is interconnections, yeah. right? That's, that's really what makes a system different than like a group of objects. And exactly. so sometimes you'll hear in software teams, like, do you have a team or a collection of individuals? Yeah. Right. So if you've got like, so the difference would be like, if you have just rocks on the side of the road, they're not doing anything no. together. Like one rock isn't influencing the other. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's an example of just like a group of things. Yeah. But in a team, there's interactions and we have to be very intentional and then we can also look at systems. There are a couple other important things are stocks. So like um, the way she describes this is a bathtub, okay. right? So we measure the amount of water, right? And then you have inflows and outflows. Hmm. And so you have things that increase the stock. You have things that decrease the stock. Yeah. Those are called balancing loops. So those are the feedback loops that we constantly want. And so we can actually control how to make things a virtuous cycle or how to get okay. more of the thing we want or what are the things that will get us less. So in yeah. a bathtub, we've got the faucet, right? And we've got a drain. And so that's very easy to visualize. But in a software system, like my background, I have a really interesting kind of like history, which brought me to here. So I spent the yeah. first decade of my career as a copywriter to really understand empathy, which is why I thought I knew about it going in. You can't really sell things through writing unless you understand the perspective of the person you're writing to. Yeah, it makes sense. And then I spent past 12 years, almost 13 now, um, diving into legacy code systems yeah. and figuring out how to um, modernize technical debt. And what I discovered is that empathy is the key to being able to pay down technical debt. Interesting. It's just the thing that people don't see. No. <laughs> it's like the root system. Like we see the thing on top, but we, we don't see the thing underneath that really is giving a system the nutrients. And so... Well, what do you mean by that then? Like, is, can you give an example towards that? Yeah. So, so the way that I define legacy code, most people think of um, Michael Feather's definition of legacy code is code without tests. Yeah. Um, he wrote that in um, Working Effectively with Legacy Code. And I think that's accurate, yet incomplete. Mm. So the way that I describe Legacy Code is that it's code without trust, right? Okay. And tests help us build trust. Yeah. But when we go into, a, you know, and that's trust in the code base, right? So, for example, if you're relying on some documentation about how to deploy yeah. But it's inaccurate. Like you can't trust then that the rest of the documentation is going to work. Exactly. Right? So then you have to spend extra time and, you know, technical debt is what it's friction, right? Yeah. It's friction between your idea and getting it out into the world. And so if we can increase the amount of trust, both in the code base and in our teams, yeah. then we can achieve a healthier code base. So trust becomes the stock, similar to how we have the, um, the bathtub metaphor, right? Yeah. So trust is kind of the water. And when I say trust, I am using uh, justified trust. Like there's a mm. whole philosophy is another area I had to go into, right? Because trust can be something that can be misused. Yeah. Um, Charles Feldman in his book, The Thin Book of Trust, just, I love his definition. It's trust is making something that you value vulnerable to another person's actions. So vulnerability okay. is an inherent part of, of trust. And so when I say trust, it's in the assumption that trust has been built and we, we know that people aren't going to take advantage, right? So you've got no. like con artists and people like that who prey on people. That's not what I'm talking about. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, so justified trust. Yeah. Um, so what are the things that are going to increase trust? And then what are the things that are going to decrease trust? Yeah. And that is where empathy comes into play. 
So we can look at things like some of the things that erode trust faster than anything yeah. are shame, right? Contempt. Yeah. Uh, and um, there's research from social scientists that demonstrate a lot of these things. So um, John Gottman, uh, he has a book called The Science of Trust. Mm. And so he's studied marriages for 40 plus years. Okay. And is able to predict with a high degree of accuracy how, like, which couples are likely to get a divorce based on the way they communicate with each other. Interesting. And what he found is that contempt, which is the feeling that you are better than someone else. Yeah. And kind of talking down to someone, right? And dehumanizing them in a way. Yeah. Like, there are various degrees of it. That is the thing that will destroy a relationship the fastest. Yeah. yeah. Renee Brown has great research on shame. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Like, so, and it's interesting because <laughs> when I came into software, I was kind of blissfully ignorant of the, uh, the culture. <laughs> and so, because I had been in marketing and yeah, there's, but for the it's most different. part, it's, yeah. it's, it was different. Like people collaborated and, you know, there were disputes, but it, when I came into software, like my business partner was like, oh, just go on to Stack Overflow and figure it out. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, like people use shame and contempt as a weapon hmm. in software. It is, it is very prevalent. And I think that is the thing that defines our toxic tech culture. Yeah, okay. that's, that's where the toxicity comes from. I. I think I've been very lucky in, in that I haven't had it like that. Like I would yeah. always, so I, I started in a in a very junior position. I didn't know anything, yeah. right? I didn't know anything. I said everything, but I meant anything. Um, <laughs> meaning to me, it was obvious that the other people far surpassed me in whatever we were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for them, it was always obvious also, except they never showed it to me. Whenever I had a dialogue mm-hmm. with someone, they said, we are colleagues, right? We are equals. Hierarchy doesn't matter. We're in the same team. Let me yeah. show you how to do this, right? They really took me beside them um, and helped me learn and grow that way. And I think if if it was any other way, if it was any other people, um, it wouldn't have been the same and it would have yeah. been more of an uphill battle. Uh, so I do feel like that trust was always there inherently. Yeah, yeah. Just, just and put my mind at ease so much that's more. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. I think, you know... And I think that different people experience this in different ways, right? Like, and I, and also culture has a lot to do with it. So you're in the Netherlands, right? Yeah. Um, and so collectivism, right, is is more of a value here than here in the United States where individualism and individual contribution tends to be kind of a national value. Okay. So that plays into it. There's just, it's incredibly complex. Yeah. But- Here's the thing with empathy is that we are really good as software developers at taking a domain and breaking it down into its component parts, understanding how they all relate to each other. Like we do this all the time with domain mapping. Um, And so that's kind of where I've been going with the book. That was kind of the light bulb moment when I was like, oh, if we use decomposition, then maybe we can make this work. Yeah. So, so when, when we look at empathy, the research tells us that it actually has four component parts. Okay. Um, so the first is, uh, it's called empathic concern. Yeah. Which is actually caring, right? It, it's the motivation. Like yeah. if you don't have this, this is um, sometimes called compassion, right? Um, and in the book, I break it into three distinct things. I, yeah. Compassion, which is the desire to relieve another person's suffering. And this is something that you can cultivate, which then gives you the motivation to do the other things that are required in empathy. Yeah. Um, And um, uh, attunement, which is from John Gottman's research, which is being able to have an interpersonal relationship and build that trust as Mm. opposed to degrading it. And there's some specific ways to do that. And then also altruism and that was another place that blew my mind where there's a lot of research on how altruism can be very, very good acting in a way that's pro-social where you help people. But if it comes out of a place of distress yeah. where you're feeling distressed, 
it can actually hurt people. There's a whole field of study called pathological altruism, which is where, you know, people take it to the extreme and then become violent because they feel like they're protecting someone. That's an yeah. example. So, so understanding again, the nuance. So that's the first part is, is caring and understanding and kind of anchoring yourself of, am I in a good place to actually form an empathetic relationship with someone? Yeah. The next is emotional regulation. So this is why emotions come in. Um, and so being able to calm yourself down, hmm. right? Um, and with this, it's, you know, about setting boundaries. That was actually a huge, huge one. Um, and let me actually just pull up the other ones there. Um, so we've got boundaries. And then we also have heightening your awareness, right? Okay. So this is where kind of mindfulness comes in, hmm. where, you know, it's being able to pay attention to what is going on in my body. Oh, I'm feeling my heart pace faster. Why is that? What's going on? And being able to slow down and just be present yeah. and learn to notice. And then also regulating your empathic capacity. So with that, like, you know, our, our ability to empathize is a metabolically like really expensive activity. Okay. It, it requires a lot of brain power yeah. um, that we have. And that's a fixed amount. Like we, we only have so much. Our brain can't generate more uh, electrical energy to, to do these things. So yeah. we have to make sure that we are managing our stress, that we're eating well, right? That we're sleeping. All of those things also contribute to our ability to empathize. Interesting. So once, we, once we've developed a place where we are anchored in genuine motivation, we are calm. The next is consideration. So this is described as um, cognitive empathy. And so this is the empathy that I learned as, um, as a marketer, yeah. which is being able to take another person's perspective in a thinking way. Okay. Um, and so with this, you, you start to see things pop up in UX, like mental models, hmm. right? And so, you know, being able to map out you know, an accurate description of how somebody else is feeling. And so we do this in several different ways. Um, but we also have merge conflicts, yeah. <laughs> right, in the same way, where like our internal belief about something may not match the evidence. Yeah. And so when that happens, what do we do, right? And yeah. so this is where bias comes in. This is where logical fallacies come up, right? We see this in priming, right? So, for example... If you're a realtor and you want to sell a house, one thing that a lot of people do is they bake cookies 30 minutes before people show up. And oh, that's so it smells smell. good. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's called cognitive priming. Okay. Um, where where it's it's a way to basically help people remember, you know, elicit, you know, good memories and things yeah. like that. Um, and so there's a fine line there between, you know, what's kind of helping someone get into the space where they can make their own decision and what veers into manipulation where you're no longer giving people a choice or you're, you're guiding them down a path that they're unaware of. Yeah. Um, and then after, and then we also have ethics, right? So we need to be able to recognize like, what's our impact on society? Are we making decisions that are fair, moral, and just, yeah. right? And so there are ethical frameworks to consider. And then once we've got all that, right, then we look at communication. Right. And so that becomes the the artifact, like the thing that we produce. So similar exactly. where test driven development, we've got tests and that's like the thing with um, behavior driven development. We're working with scenarios and that's, yeah. the, that's the thing um, with empathy driven development. We're working with communication and specifically communication artifacts, things that are durable Okay. Right, things that you can leave behind because that's going to be something that builds trust. Yeah, and then when we can do this in this way, another thing is looking at networks. Well, right, what would so an artifact yeah. look like? So an artifact can be like a commit message. Ah, that's okay. the one I typically look at. Right. Yeah. So let's say that you're using some kind of automated tool. Yeah. And. You know, you're going in and just kind of like not even paying attention to the commit messages, yeah. right? And let's say that your future self a year from now is like, oh, man, there was a bug in here. Yeah. 
Well, commit messages can be one of the best tools for reconstructing historical knowledge about what happened in the code base because everything's timestamped, right? And it's tightly coupled to the code. Yeah. So it's not like a wiki where things can easily get out of date, right? Like exactly. It's, it's right alongside. But yeah. it's a missed opportunity for a lot of teams because then if you go back and the only thing that things set, that the commit messages say are updates API, updates API, updates API, it's updates all the same. API. Yeah. Then it's like, well, what the heck happened? What were the decisions that were that were being made here? Another example is architecture decision records. Yeah. Right. Where if something changes in the system architecture, taking a moment to document it and say, okay, this is why we made this change. Yeah. And what I find is that a lot of times in legacy systems, the why is completely lost. It's gone. And so it's gone. And yeah. That's how we build trust in the system is being able to recognize what was somebody thinking when they did this? What was their motivation? Yeah. Right. And that's how we can form compassion with somebody that we're not in the same room with or somebody yeah. who, you know, may not have even, you know, we've never met, yeah. um, you know, across space and time. Right. Yeah. Very and interesting. Yeah. And so we can look at instead of looking at people with character flaws and looking down with them with contempt and saying, why did they do it this way? Yeah. Right. What an idiot. We can reframe that and we can approach it with empathy and say, huh, I wonder why they did it this way. Exactly. Let me find out. Right. Yeah. And, and it's the same word, but a different feeling. And that small shift can have a profound impact on the quality of the code, the ability to deploy, the happiness of the team, the uh, productivity of the team, right? The feeling of belonging. Yeah. And, and there are so many positive benefits. So, you know, that's why I think trust is, the, is that stock. Yeah. The different elements that I listed um, in, you know, that kind of relate that are in the decomposed empathy I describe that as empathy system architecture. So kind of okay. those 12 things, they move in and out and you're constantly like, you know, moving. And then the yeah. process that's similar to red, green refactor when we're looking at test driven development or, you know, given when then if, if we're looking at behavior driven development, yeah. right? And the process becomes care, calm, consider, communicate, where it's like, okay, let me anchor myself. Am I feeling personal distress? Okay. Like when, you, when you're writing an email, for example, yeah. right? Like don't write an email angry. And when you're no. feeling like somebody's stupid, right? Like that's, exactly. that, that's kind of basic advice. So calm down, right? And then think about how that email is going to be read. And then think about, is there anything in the way? Like, are they super busy? Are they on vacation, right? Yeah. What are the, what's in the, um, what aspects of the communication channel are going to yep. be impacted. And this is another place I could totally geek out. I'm just going to give a <laughs> nugget here where um, Shannon uh, Weaver was the person who in the 1930s created a generalized communication system. It is the exact same in computing as it is in communication school. Yeah, Not derivative. They are literally the same model. <laughs> and so from there, we can look at Things like entropy. So in software, when we want to generate an SSH key or encrypt something, we want something in a high entropy environment, right? Yeah. Where there's a lot of uncertainty. We can use those same principles by recognizing the status of the communication system. And we can look at the amount of entropy. And entropy is linked with compression. So you know, that's why we have long SSH keys because they're harder, you know. Harder. Exactly. We can look at this with acronyms, right? So we say TDD, and I can say that because I'm pretty sure that people who are listening to this understand that. Yeah. If I went to my gardening club and started saying that, people would be yeah, like, what sense. the heck are you talking about? Yeah. And then even if I said tester in development, they're like, I don't understand that, what that is. Yeah. And if I said, well, it's a way of creating software that instead of writing tests and debugging, you know, and, and fixing bugs after you've written the code, you do it before. And people yeah. still might be like, okay, I don't quite understand. But do you see how it's like, it's a longer explanation, but it's more clear given the audience. Yeah. And so it's those kinds of things that we can draw from 
our of our experience as software developers that can help us understand this really abstract thing called empathy and we can deploy it effectively and then we can embed it into our daily habits and we can build up those things that are virtuous and that will create more trust and then we can do less of you know activities that breed contempt and shame and that degrade trust. And yeah. then when we do that, it, it tends to have just a, a profoundly positive impact um, in many different areas with yeah, the code, I, with the teams, and also with the organization. Yeah. When you when you were talking about kind of the communication artifacts, right? When yeah. I went to commit messages, ADRs, and I, I even had pull requests in my mind. Um, yeah. I, I know that's a good thing right, from experience because when you go through that, you do see like a refactor or an API change and you're like, okay, I saw like 50 of them. That wasn't the only thing. Um, right. Or I see a general description for like a million files changed and I'm like, there's a lot more in this. Um, so I like leaving those breadcrumbs, right? And I teach mm -hmm. my team, I teach my peers. I was also taught by my colleagues, right? Leave the why within the code, right? Leave yes. it in a commit message, link it to your tickets, whatever ticket system you use. Uh, be descriptive in your pull request. Sometimes even we had a system yep. in place that you needed to add uh, images, like this is the before, this is the after, yep. so you can yeah. visually see what's going on. Right? Little yeah. breadcrumbs that help people understand the why. But yep. I never looked beyond that and thought, actually, this is for trust building, right? This makes us mm -hmm. more comfortable in the code base that we're working with, that we can go back and we can see, okay, these are the decisions that have been made, understand what's going on, and build on top of that instead of just being thrown into a black hole uh, and building mm -hmm. on top of that, right? The unknown yeah. is, is way more scary that way. But yeah. I, I had well, never also, linked it to trust in that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's also um, around being able to reconstruct the context. Mm. So a good example here is linguistics, yeah. right? And this is why I focus on durable artifacts, durable communication artifacts, where there's two different languages that are um, kind of predecessors to Greek. Yeah. One is linear A and the other is linear B. Okay. Now we can reconstruct linear B. Hmm. We understand how it works. We understand the meaning of words, but we can't with linear A. Okay. We can understand the grammar. We can pick out a few words, but we don't, we are not able to reconstruct the meaning. Of that language. And the reason is because we don't have enough artifacts. Like the data set is too small. Yeah. We can't really. And there's to actually it. some interesting math. Like there are linguists who have gone and like done mathematical models about like these are the number of artifacts that we would need in order to reconstruct this language. Interesting. Right? And so if you look at things like Latin, yeah. right? The reason, like I took Latin in school, like. <laughs> You know, I understand, you know, the reason that we can still teach it is because there is an abundance of data around how that language worked. Yeah. So it's easier to understand and reconstruct. And so in the code base, it works the same way. If you have too few artifacts, it's not a question of whether or not you're, you know, the person working on it today is smart enough or, you know, has enough knowledge of yeah. the domain or Ever, it's that the data set of what was done before is simply too small. You can't exactly. go back and reconstruct it. But if there's a very rich data set, even if you as the producer never end up using it again, yeah, it, your commit message could be the key to helping someone two years from now yeah. solve a problem quickly, right? And so it's getting into those habits, right? And it's and it's finding ways. Like I'm a big fan of. Um, the book Living Documentation by Cyril Martinier, I think is how I say his last name. Okay. Um, and it talks about like how to create documentation in a way that isn't separate from what your daily activities are, right? And okay. how to leave those really good artifacts, you know, across your project in a way that isn't uh, – going to disrupt your workflow. And I yeah. think that's one of the things that I get a lot. It's like, oh, I got to do all this extra stuff. Yeah. It's like, well, A, it can be a good reflection because 
stepping back and synthesizing our ideas is actually yep. a really good way. To, this is why we do retrospectives and reflections. And so you can use the opportunity of writing a commit message um, to just take a thinking, take a beat and like think about what you did and why did you do it? Yeah. And then that helps cement or helps you learn from, you know, what did I learn? I had an art professor once and it was, I had to write an essay about if you had to, it wasn't just what we had produced, but okay. we also had to have an essay of like, what was your process? And then if you were to paint this painting again, what would you do differently? Nice. And that was like, that was such a good exercise. And I yeah. think that that's something we don't often, I mean, we do sometimes in retrospectives, but as individuals, so being able to like write in and say, you know, I would have loved to have done this. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the ideal state. However, I was under a time constraint. And so, this you know, what here's, actually here's an article of like what I would have done. Yeah. You know, like, you don't know if it's going to be used, but. You know, chances are you've got the article up. You can just add the link. There's also yeah. a really great tool, uh, Loom, which mm -hmm. has an integration with D GitHub, and it's a way to capture screen shares really, really, really easily. Okay. So that's another way to kind of get rich, rich artifacts into your into your code base. Yeah. Um, what I've noticed yeah, on, and on my end when I write a commit message, right? When I've done that continuously. Before writing the code, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this first because that's going to be my first commit, right? In and of its own, that's mm. going to make sense. And then I structure my thoughts ahead of what I think my Ooh. messages are going to be. Or sometimes, obviously, it doesn't work all the time. Yeah. When I've blurted out a bunch of code, then I'm like, okay, let me compartmentalize this because I want to be able to convey what happened here. And then I, I stash things, yeah. I, I pop things, and I make structured commit messages that way. Because I, I want to, for myself and for others, be able to explain what happened here, right? Because right. I think it's 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 the only thing you can leave behind, right? You can't yeah. be on a project all the time. You can't be in an organization all the time. Things continuously shift and mm -hmm. people continuously pop in and out. So I can't be there to explain verbally. First of all, I don't want to because I would be able right. I, would, I I wouldn't even remember myself. Um, yep. So I couldn't even explain it. But those are little breadcrumbs I leave for others and even for myself because mm -hmm. weeks ahead, months ahead, I'm not going to remember what happened. It's only absolutely. human, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that gets to a, 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 you know, a kind of a point that, that I've been looking at for the past about maybe five years. So mm. we, well, I'm actually coming up on six. Um, so my business partner and I, we were at a conference and we found a number of other people who love legacy code. Hmm. And so we started a community called Legacy Code Rocks. Yep. You can go to legacycode.rocks if you love legacy code and want to geek out with other people who do too. Nice. Um, and through there, we started a podcast, we started a meetup. And what I started to really want to share was that Legacy code has a really bad rap. It's it does. like, and it's like, ugh, I don't want to work on legacy code. That's yeah. shame and contempt yeah. right there. Because I am people ashamed. Don't trust it. It's beneath me, right? Yeah. But um, I love Amitai Schleyer's definition of legacy code, which is it's valuable code that's hard to change. It like, is. Legacy code drives your business, yeah. <laughs> right? And so, Instead of looking at it as like, oh, I don't want to work on that, right? Like just shifting your mindset as this is really important to the business. Yeah. And how can I help make our business stronger? Exactly. Because of it. And then it can also help you link to the past and say, okay, what have other people done? What were their constraints? And, yeah. and in this way, you can connect to the humanity of it in a similar way that you that you have a legacy as humans, like heirlooms, yeah. right? Like you think of, you know, like I have some crystal bowls that, you know, were were passed down to me and they were my great, great grandmothers. Yeah. And just like I have that connection to someone that I never had a chance to meet through this object. And that is a legacy. That is my family's legacy. And this is a tangible object. And that same idea can be applied to code. Yeah. Where 
I'm working on this code base and on this system and sometimes even on this file or this repo and someone else created it, right? Who maybe worked here two years ago, right? How can I connect to that humanity in the past, but then also how can I connect to the people who will come after me so that I can be someone that helps them in the future? And so when we do these things, we're proactively motivating ourselves to change the activities that we know create healthy code bases. Exactly. But it transforms it from a check the box activity where it's like, oh, I got to write a commit message. It's so annoying to I care about the people on my team and I care about myself and I care about the people who are going to come after me. So I'm going to take the time to actually document what I'm thinking. And that, that motivation that comes from compassion is, is the key difference. And so being able to train people to no longer think of empathy as a soft skill and to start thinking of it as a software skill. It is a technical skill. Oh, believe me, I've it's deep. You can yeah. keep going for like however long you want in a similar way that you can study like microprocessors or you can study like system design. It, it is it is just as technical yeah. um, if we know where to look. And if we start to use our superpowers of decomposition, where then that way we can structure it in in a kind of analytical way. Yeah. Yeah. I love I love the way you lay it out. Like it's a legacy on a personal level is good, right? I'm building my legacy or whatever I'm leaving behind for my kids and their kids and you want it to be as good as possible. Yet I, I agree with you that legacy code has a bad rep, right? And I think it does go into, okay, we, we don't actually trust it. We don't actually know what's going on here. Uh, we don't yeah. want to figure it out because I do think it, it requires time and effort to figure yeah. it out. But I completely yeah. agree on the other hand that it is valuable. So if... Yeah. We want to be effective if we want to be valuable. Sometimes you do have to deal with legacy code, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, even my examples, and I, I don't know how I would fix this. I'm writing commit messages. I'm structuring my stuff. I'm trying mm-hmm. to convey. I'm trying to argue with my team that we should do this. And a lot of the times it works, right? We do see value yeah. in that. Except we can't go back in history and rewrite things, right? I mean, Actually, we can because we touch a lot of things, but you, you could yeah. never do that, right? Lost commit messages that have no context are there yeah. and are, are going to stay there. So you still need so to be able to... That's so important, that word context. That's exactly the thing. And so yeah. I think that's another that's another measurable thing that can help us, you know, if we're looking at another aspect of stock, right, that we want to create more of context is 100% something yeah. that that we want to create as well. Exactly. That That is the why. That is the environment we're in, uh, also the time we're in, right? The situations mm-hmm. at hand. And then we can explain the decisions we made because mm-hmm. you always make the decisions based on a lot of stuff, a lot of factors mm-hmm. there. So if you can mm-hmm. kind of, how do you say that? Make artifacts out of your context. I'm kind of visualizing breaking down a puzzle piece by piece. Yeah, So people exactly. can find those and kind of make the picture yeah. in their own mind. Um then it, it is valuable. But I'm, yeah. I've been wondering since we've been talking, what if it what what if you're not at that stage, right? What if there's not even a puzzle that you can create from the code that you have? What if you find yourself in a legacy situation in, in that way? How can you structure it and pay it forward to the future? Is it just by starting and by doing? What do you think? Yeah. There? I think the first thing is to start with care, hmm. right? And so it's recognizing like like just being motivated out of compassion yeah. instead of out of like, I don't care, I'm just doing this as a job or out of contempt where I'm better than everyone else and all the other developers are stupid. Yeah. Um, and like, it has to be my way or, you know, the any way. other decisions were stupid. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the definition of contempt. Yeah. Um, so my, my first suggestion is always, like, learn about compassion. There are tons of different practices out there. Emory University has a cognitively-based compassion training, and my understanding is it's free. So you can go online. You can understand the basics of compassion. You can get some training. Awesome. Um, there's, there's a lot of books out there. There's one. Um, so one of the most effective uh, practices for um, uh, developing compassion is what's called loving-kindness meditation, and this comes out of the Buddhist tradition, but neuroscience backs it up that this is like 
a really good practice for developing compassion okay. um, in a secular way as well. Mm. Um, and so the practice is that you are both um, broadening, so you're, you're developing flexible thinking skills, yep. but you're also um, looking at being a benefactor, right? And so it's, it's, you're jointly doing, building those two skills. Okay. So you're fostering positive uh, desire for other people. So, and you start with yourself. I think okay. that's the other thing that people forget about empathy. It is not just about other people. You must have self-compassion. Mm. Uh, Kristen Neff is the preeminent researcher on self-compassion. She's got a great, uh, several great books out there. Um, so you start with yourself and, you know, there are many different ways to do this, but typically it's, you know, saying things like, may I be happy? May I be at peace? Mm. May I be healthy? May I live with ease? Yeah. And for a lot of people, that alone is hard. Yeah. I can see that. And, and that's the first step. That's the first step because I think the reason a lot of times the research shows us that people operate out of contempt yeah. is because they're actually, they have low self-worth or they aren't able to send compassion inward. Okay. And so it's not that people who are operating out of contempt are bad people yeah. and should be shamed. That's just going to make things worse. Exactly. It's That's how can spiral. we help them? Yeah. How can we help them cultivate this compassion? And so then what you do is you kind of move in concentric circles outward. So okay. you think of somebody that you care deeply about, maybe a family member or a close friend. And so for me, I have a good friend, Anna, right? So may Anna be happy. Yeah. May Anna be healthy. May Anna be calm. May she live with ease. Right. And so then you maybe go to a coworker or somebody that you know, but not like deeply well. And and you keep going out to someone that's neutral, like maybe the cashier at your, you know, at a restaurant. Um, then you move to someone that you don't have a great relationship with, like someone you're struggling. And um, be careful with this one. So if it's somebody that you like have had traumatic experience with or something else, like don't go there without professional help, right? Yeah. That's something that uh, that someone who uh, understands how to deal with trauma should help you navigate through. But let's say that I'm having an interpersonal conflict with someone on my team and we're just kind of like bristling against each other and not understanding each other, right? Like, may this person be happy. Yeah. Right? May they be healthy. And like, then it gives you the motivation to confront them and say, okay, how can we fix this? I yeah. care about you and I care about your relationship. I care about this stuff. And because you've grounded yourself, you've given yourself the motivation and you've also helped yourself heal. So you're no longer operating out of a place of stress chemically, yeah. right? You've activated different hormones in your, in your body so that you can listen. That's part of that capacity. You know, you're taking slow and deep breaths. Those are the skills where they seem... Woo woo. <laughs> and there's a place for them in spirituality. And yeah. there's also a place for them in like day to day work. So um, Sharon Salzberg, or, yeah, Sharon or Shannon, I think it's Sharon Salzberg uh, has excellent material. She really um, pioneered loving kindness in the West in okay. a more secular tradition. And she actually just came out with a book of loving kindness at work. Nice. And finding small opportunities. So, for example, let's say that you're waiting for your test to pass, yeah. right? That may take, in best case, like 30 seconds, mm -hmm. right? Um, sometimes it takes longer. That is an opportunity, right? May someone be happy, you know? And you yeah. can also think about who's writing the, like, who are you writing a commit for, right? That's an opportunity to practice compassion. Yeah. May the person who's reading this, like, find this easy, Right. What can I do to help make this easy for them? And so everything about empathy springs from compassion. It is the wellspring from which it all comes. So that is always my very first recommendation is if this feels odd and new and you're like, where the heck can I start? Yeah. Start with compassion and start with compassion for yourself. Exactly. You do not need your manager's permission. You do not need to ask for 
anybody's authority to get started. You just need to do it for yourself and, you know, observe, like act like a scientist, see kind of what changes, see, and then you're going to be able to find opportunities. You know, the, the framework that I'm putting forth, it's important to note that it's descriptive. Hmm. It's, it's what I've discovered and this is my way of breaking down a domain from yeah. my understanding. But as we know, there are infinite permutations to break exactly. down a complex do- domain. This is the one that made sense for me, but I, I think I would encourage people to go and explore it on your own as well. Like learn about this. This, you know, the way that I'm describing things doesn't have to be like this is the only way that it can be done. Right. And I hope that it never becomes dogmatic where you know, it, but instead it's like, this is an inspiration. And if you're looking for a framework to at least get you started, yep. you know, this is one, you know, this is one that you might want to try that is exactly. geared for the context of developing software. Yeah. So, so that's my hope in that it's, it's a tool that can help people find places within their daily work where they, where they can make a difference and they can start to add empathy in a very concrete and specific way. Yeah. And instead of just thinking of empathy as something really broad, and I call it sometimes tossing empathy confetti around where it's have empathy, have empathy, empathy is amazing, right? I like that example. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, but then how? Exactly. Yeah. Tell me how. What do you mean by empathy? Like, and I think just as people in our industry are just tend to be insatiably curious and care about the details. Yeah. And a lot of times I think people get frustrated with people like us because it's like, well, it's just, it's empathy, don't you know? It's like, well, so so my hope is that I can kind of be that bridge and that translator of, yeah, here's this big messy thing and here's how it's relevant to us in in what we're doing. Yeah, so. I, think, I think that's needed, but I love the way that you're laying it out, that it's not black and white, right? I, I yeah. sometimes hear, that's not me, I don't have it, but it is not that black and white, it's much more of a skill. So try out, mm-hmm. start with yourself, right? Try small uh, and really hone that skill because all of a sudden yeah. it, it is going to be you, right? It, it is a skill. It's not, it might be a final destination, I guess, if that's where yeah. you want to go. Like it could be a goal, uh, but it's not like anyone has it or they don't. It's right. something you can actually hone and you can b- get better at. Yeah. Every, like the neuroscience tells us that everyone has empathy. Yeah. And it, Everyone. it makes sense. And, it's, and that it's a skill. Yeah. Right? Um, and now there is trait empathy. So for some people, like, it may come easier than others, similar to how, like, some people are born, you know, where running a marathon is easier yeah. for them. Right? And, you know, the there are definitely challenges. I don't want to make it sound like everybody can achieve the same level. And at the same yeah. time, empathy doesn't empathy is incredibly individualized. There is no one correct way to be an empath or to operate with empathy. Yeah. And this was the thing that I discovered the most. I have always identified as somebody who was an empath, right? I can mm. I can sense things. I'm just kind of like you have a good have feeling a pretty about good it. under. I have a good feeling and I can kind of read the room a little bit like and I, you know. Yeah. And in some ways that was a skill that was developed from being in sales and marketing, right? Yeah. So I got tr- I got very specific training on that. So um and the other thing is like let's look at the character data from Star Trek. And some people don't know who I'm talking about cuz I'm dating myself, but Star Trek Next Generation is the best show ever. I love it. I love it. I love it. And there's another researcher out in Stanford. His name is Jamil Zaki. Yeah. And he actually put forth uh, what's called the Roddenberry hypothesis. Okay. Which shows in his hypothesis is around pop culture and how much it has influenced our ideas of what empathy is. And so Data is an android. He wants to have um, emotion. He's actually the second generation because his uh, predecessor lore had a uh, emotion chip um, okay. but ended up using it in ways that were incredibly manipulative right he yeah. hurt a lot of people so he's in so lore is an example of like you can have a lot of like emotion and know how people are operating and you can cause significant harm yeah some serious that is damage not, <laughs> that is not empathy that's not what we're talking about here yeah. right 
However, on the on the ship of the Enterprise, um, there's two characters typically are diametrically opposed. So Data, who is is an android, thinks very logically, right? Um, and then also Deanna Troy, who she's half Betazoid, and so her uh, you know her ability is to sense what other um, what other beings are feeling, even okay. if she's not in the same room. So what we have done as a society is said, oh, I'm either a Data or a Diana. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so I was like, oh, I sense people. I'm Diana. Well, there's problems yeah. there. First of all, what Diana is doing is not actually empathy. It's projecting. Hmm. When I am making an assumption about how somebody feels without having never listened to their story, yeah. what I am doing is I am injecting my own bias and I am making a presumption and often that is rooted in a stereotype. Exactly. Yeah. So that is actually not good. That's not what you want. No. <laughs> right. Another couple of things is that Diana often gets overwhelmed. Hmm. Like she experiences personal distress where she's like, ah, I can't. The, it's too ah, much. the feelings. And I feel that too. Right. And so, you know, operating from personal distress sometimes can be really cha- challenging too. Now, she does like go and take care of herself. But a lot of times people will like lean in and then they'll try to help people out of that feeling of personal distress and cause problems. Yeah. Now, Data, I will argue, exhibits amazing empathy. Interesting. Okay. I think he is, I think he is incredibly, I think he's a great example for what effective empathy can be. Interesting. He understands his own worth. There's a great, um, episode measure of a man and he talks about his personal boundaries and like he's like no i will not be subjected to this treatment because you think that i you know am a machine right and and he defends himself right and he sets really good boundaries he is also insanely curious and he recognizes like he does attunement of i sense that you're feeling this is this actually what you're feeling right and yeah. he's validating, like, I'm observing this. What does that mean? Yeah. Right? That's what we want more of. It's not necessarily about inference. Inference, if we rely on inference alone, that can go in really bad directions. Yeah. Right? Uh, data also has amazing emotional regulation skills. Right? So he's not operating out, of, right? Part of it is because he doesn't have the emotion chip. Right? Yeah. But he's able to operate from this place of clear and calm. Yeah. So what we're actually looking for is not for everybody to have empathy in the same way. And it shows the the science shows that that's not actually feasible, right? Yeah. What we're looking for is that we can all work together and similar to like our brains kind of have fingerprints of how we process different information. Every single one of us has a different set of experiences that we bring to the table. Yeah. And so, Empathy at its best is recognizing that and working with people, right? So for me, I've got people in my life where it's like we've it's been a lot of work, like my my business partner at Corybyte specifically. We don't naturally understand each other. Like okay. every single test that we've taken, like our our thinking styles are more different opposites. than opposites. <laughs> yeah. We're opposites. However, we have learned to care. We have learned to, when we have a disagreement, come back and say, okay, how can we learn? How can we do better next time? Right. Um, and when we do that, then the most creative solutions are able to come out of it. Yeah. But if we say, oh, this is hard. This person isn't like me. I'm going to go over there. Those stupid people who like, they think like that. Yeah. Yeah, you you make it personal. And then what we're doing is we're just we're creating division, not diversity. Yeah. Um and and also this work is hard. <laughs> I struggle with it every day. Like I am like I am no way like an empathy expert. I think if if doing all of this research has taught me one thing, it's that like there is no perfect empathy. No, I, I didn't think there would be, right? Yeah. We all we all do our best, right? Yeah. And you hone that skill, right? You start off with kind of a, a base level, I guess. And for some people, yeah. it's higher. For some, it's it's lower. Uh, so they might have some catching up to do. 
I think for me it was always higher because I'm I'm curious and I'm a good listener. I do yeah. recognize what you said in the Star Trek example that I I have caught myself projecting and I, I was mm -hmm. completely wrong, right? But being yeah. able to step back and reflect and be like, that wasn't good. Like I I don't yeah. want that. So yeah. I, if I hear other people, I'll catch them being like, you're actually just projecting, right? It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be like that. Uh, and for myself, I'm I'm more cautious in that way. I listen yeah. and observe before I uh, speak my mind. And if it's wrong, I'm wrong, right? It's not personal. Yeah. We we learn from that. We continue. Uh, that's why I also like being in that team, being in that diverse team. Um, and I love all the people around me, right? Mm -hmm. If we don't like each other, we need to have a conversation because we can't we can't operate effectively. Decisions right. that we make in a business sense is going to be a personal attack all of a sudden. Oh, this this yeah. person doesn't like me. And we draw yeah. those two separate things. We draw them next to each other. And all of a sudden it's personal. And you never yeah. want it to be personal because that, that's very hard to get back from. Yeah, I've been there. I've yeah. been there and it's hard. I mean, a lot of times when I have been there, it's that I'm operating out of a defensive mode. Like yeah. I'm, I'm not feeling good about my own personal situation. So I lash out. And, and again, it's like in those moments, I was really hurting, right? And back to what I was talking about at the beginning where it's like our brains use predictions yep. to decide how to move forward. Yep. But our brains also have this tiny little moment of opportunity biologically where we can gauge whether or not our instinct is actually the action we want to take. And yep. So this is where that awareness comes in. So this is why we don't like, you know, throw our keyboard across the room every time <laughs> like a test doesn't pass, right? Exactly. Like, we do have these emotional regulation skills um, and they can be developed. They they are hard for a lot of us. Like, um, but, but by paying attention and learning and, and knowing that like the neuroscience is there, like that's been something that's been really empowering for me is just knowing like, okay, there's evidence that this is a thing that can be done. Yeah. It's not just this, kind of wishy-washy it's not yeah. philosophy it's not exactly. like you know somebody from you know 1700 said this and so therefore it's super relevant like it's no like we've we've done a lot sorry we've done a lot of research and like this is what the science is telling us yeah, this is collected the evidence mm -hmm. and so to me that's that's something that helps give me motivation that and trust that if i try something that you know it's worth it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and there's there's just so much, so much there. I, I could literally talk about this for days. <laughs> I, I, could. I I see that. I feel <laughs> I that. So. I think we I think we covered a lot. I, I'm did. gonna have to like this episode really made me think. I, I have oh, so yeah. many scenarios in which things could have gone differently or I, I relate to the things that the examples that you give. And I, I can even see that I have gotten better at it, right? Just by virtually knowing of its existence and knowing mm -hmm. that it can be helpful, um, stepping out of, sometimes it feels like out of my body, out of the situation and observing what I've done. Yep. And if I actually want to do that in the future as well. Yeah. Right. Sometimes Absolutely. you get a question and you're like, I would do X, Y, and Z. Uh, but being able to be like, oh, I actually did A, B, and C and not being happy with it and acting yeah. upon that, I think is, is very important. Um, so I, I love the journey we kind of laid out. Is there anything that's still missing that you still wanted to share? Hmm. I think just believing in you, hmm. right? Like even if you don't believe in yourself right now, yeah. just know that like I, through this research, I genuinely believe that everyone deserves compassion yeah. And has the capacity to, well, not everyone. There are um, specific conditions of, that affect, you know, less than 2% of the population that, that make compassion spontaneously a real challenge, right? Yeah. However, generally, under most circumstances, compassion is less of a trait and more of a skill. 
And yep. it's something that you can learn. And even if it's hard, and even if you've been told your whole life that you don't have empathy, I don't think that's true. Yep. I think that it's, I think that what I've seen over the years in, in talking to people who identify with data is that they've checked out and it's, they've just internalized this. I'm not good at it. And the reason I know that is because I did the exact same with code. Okay. I had internalized this, like girls can't do math. I, I can't do code. I can't yeah. code. Girls can't code. Right. Um, and that's not true. Yeah. Right. But it takes a lot to overcome the cultural stereotypes that have, and, um, that have become so ingrained, but yeah, I, I, I genuinely believe that you can do it. And like, it is my mission in life to give you the tools that will help you be successful. Yeah. I, I love that message. I, I fully stand behind it. It is a skill. And like yeah. with a lot of skills, even though you might not be apt in the beginning, uh, as long as you keep going, make small steps, make even smaller yep. steps, right? Be yep. easy on yourself. Don't be too harsh. Progress yep. is progress. And you yep. don't have to be perfect. You just need to keep progressing and Absolutely. you'll get there. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you, Andrea, for this conversation. I, yes. I truly enjoyed it. I hope you Thank did you as well. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, I see that. The opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem at all. I'm going to put all Andrea's stuff in the description below. Andrea Goulet, check her out everywhere. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. You did. Yes, awesome. you did. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. And we'll see you on the next one then.